Good morning. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, sorry. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Paul Ramsey. Uh, I am one of the leaders here at Sojourn Galleria. I am a church planting resident uh, here at Sojourn. Uh, it's a joy to be with you today. It's an honor to be opening the word of God together with you so that before it, we could see what God might say to us uh, through his word, by his spirit, as we are gathered in his name. Uh, I believe, of course, today, like every week, uh, that God has something to say to us through his word. Uh, actually, as Lauren Baker said last week at the prayer gathering, very helpfully, God always has something to say to us. Um, and so let me ask him, God, we ask you this morning uh, that you would speak to us and give us the word that you have for us through this, your word in Mark chapter four. Please speak to us, Lord, in the way that only you can reveal truth to us through your word, knowing that there are many things that the Bible says um, that have yet to be weaved into our hearts. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would take the words from the page, cut us to the heart with them, change us by them, and transform us through your word into the people that you want us to be. We ask this for your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I begin, uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, do you know what the medulla oblongata is? Yes, maybe some of you do. Maybe a couple of you actually learned what it was at school, but where did you hear first about the medulla oblongata? From a movie called The Waterboy. Yes, see, not just me. Okay, um, so there's this outstanding work of cinematography called The Waterboy. Uh, actor named Adam Sandler uh, plays a grown man uh, who, is, uh, who lives uh, like a child uh, based on what his mama tells him. Uh, and there's this scene where he, uh, his, he turns out to be this extraordinary football player and he gets sent to college on some scholarship and he's sitting in his first science class. I think it's either human anatomy or maybe psychology. And the professor asks the question, can anyone tell me why alligators are so aggressive? And he raises his hand. He's like, I know this. He says, mama told me that alligators are ornery because they got all them teeth, but no toothbrush. So of course the, the class laughs and the professor laughs and says, does anyone else have an answer? And this other student speaks up, alligators are aggressive because of an enlarged medulla oblongata. It's a sector of the brain that controls aggressive behavior. Uh, and so the class laughs, the professor says, that's exactly right. And then he says, where, can anyone tell me, where does happiness come from? So the water boy, Adam Sandler, raises his hand again, says, mama says that happiness comes from magic rays of sunshine that come down when you're feeling blue. And the professor says, Mama's wrong again. And this whole class laughs at him and eventually Sandler gets angry and tackles the professor. It's a ridiculous scene. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but it actually leads to a particularly important question, I think. How do you know what you know? Um, how do you know what you know? Do you receive it or do you have to see it for yourself? Um, as we live our lives, due, due usually to a kind of repeated experience of the unreliability of other sources, we, we tend to learn over time that receiving supposed facts without questioning them is foolish. All right, and we need to learn things for ourselves. And the interesting thing for us, though, is that here, sitting in a church, reading God's word, uh, spending time here in Mark 4, Jesus invites us to do just that. He invites us to receive Elsewhere, just a few chapters after this, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus actually says to his followers, 
Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus invites us to search for it, to seek after it, to knock and ask about his kingdom, to measure his words carefully and see what yield that measurement might bring. But ultimately, the thing about the kingdom of God is that first and foremost, it is received. It's not attained. It's not gained by us. It is given to us. So what did Jesus say back in verse 11 of chapter four? He says, did he say, you have discovered the secret to the kingdom of God? No, he doesn't say that. Chapter four, Mark chapter four, verse 11, just before the passage that Robin read, Jesus says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And so the question I wanna ask us right up front um, uh, is this, how do you measure the truth of things? How do you know what you know uh, about life in general, but then about God and about the things of God? Today is the third and final sermon in a three-week series we've been going through called The Parables of the Kingdom, uh, looking at the parables from chapter four of the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is one of the first four books in uh, what we call the New Testament. Uh, the, the first four books are called the Gospels because they give four complementary accounts of the story of Jesus, his life and ministry, and what is called the Gospel, the good news message that Jesus came to proclaim. The rest of the New Testament, that is uh, the last 20 or so percent of the Bible that comes after Jesus, uh, for the most part, the rest of it explains the implications of this gospel message that Jesus teaches during these gospel accounts. And so here in the book of Mark, in Mark chapter four, we've been looking at a few of the many parables that Jesus told, which if that's a word that's unfamiliar to you, parables are stories uh, uh, that use situations from everyday life, like farming, uh, fishing, housekeeping, life with your family, and so forth, uh, to reveal things that are true about the world. And Jesus tells us that he's using these parables in particular uh, to tell truths about what he calls the kingdom of God. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you'll notice that the thread that runs through this chapter and through all these parables uh, is that Jesus describes the nature of the kingdom of God uh, using an image of seeds growing. Two weeks ago, we looked at the parable of the sower from verses one through 20 of Mark four, where Jesus compares the spread of the kingdom of God with a farmer scattering seeds, which land inevitably on different types of soil. The quality of that soil is what determines whether or not that seed will take root and bear fruit. And Jesus tells that parable to help his followers understand that there's a battle going on uh, in the ministry of the kingdom of God with forces seeking to prevent the word of the gospel from bearing fruit in the lives of his hearers and that as a result, there will be a diversity of reactions to the preached word of the gospel. But nevertheless, Jesus reassures some seed will fall on good soil and an abundant harvest will be seen one day. Last week, we looked at Jesus' idea of this lamp on a lampstand bringing light to the world. And then he goes into the parable of, a seed, of the seed growing as it's called. Uh, another seed parable, verses 21 through 29, where Jesus again compares the kingdom of God to a farmer scattering seed on the ground. But this time he tells it in a way that helps his di disciples deal with the apparent inaction of the kingdom of God. Jesus says, don't worry, remain faithful and faithfully working, sowing seeds, trust that the growth is coming and it will come in abundance. With that said, it will be slow and gradual like a seed growing. As one commentator put it, despite appearances to the contrary, it's growing and the harvest will come, but it will come in God's time and in God's way, not by human effort or in accordance with human logic. And so 
this week, we're in the third and final parable in Mark chapter four. Uh, and as we look at, my, at this passage together, here's my plan for the morning. First thing I wanna do is, is look at the text itself. Look at what the words themselves are saying. Uh, the second thing, we're gonna make a couple of observations from that passage. And third, uh, time permitting, I'll ask us a few questions um, that I think that this, this text brings us to. So with that, let's jump in. Uh, Robin read the passage for you just a few moments ago, but since there's only five verses, I wanna read it again for us. Look with me at Mark chapter four. This is verse 30. And he said, Jesus is speaking. Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So for starters, uh, what do we see here in this text? Jesus moves on, of course, to another parable, uh, another thing with which to compare the kingdom of heaven, and he picks a grain of mustard seed. And he tells us why he picks the grain of mustard seed. It's because it starts as the smallest of all the seeds on the earth, he says but then becomes larger than all the garden plants, putting out large branches for the birds of the air to make nests in its shade. So there's a contrast between the tiny seed and the large growth that is experienced. And then finally, in verses 33 through 34, Mark gives his commentary on the situation. He tells us that Jesus spoke the word to his hearers through these and other parables like them. Many such parables, as he says in verse 33. In other words, Mark tells us that he's only given us a selection of the parables that Jesus used to teach about the kingdom, right? Uh, and following the pattern of the parable of the sower from the beginning of the chapter, Jesus went on to explain everything to his closest disciples after he told them to the crowds. Uh, so we can see from the way that Mark tells us these things that these parables of the kingdom were uh, the content of his public preaching ministry in Galilee. The word that he spoke uh, was the gospel of the kingdom of God, and the way that he spoke it was through parables as they were able to hear it. So before we dive into the meaning of the parable itself, I wanna make two, I think, important clarifications. One, uh, for one, uh, to answer a possible objection that you might have or you might one day hear, uh, when Jesus refers to the grain of mustard seed as being the smallest of all the seeds on the earth, this is untrue. Right. There are seeds that are smaller than mustard seeds. But what Jesus is doing is he's using a proverbial statement that's used with relative frequency in the Bible and in other ancient texts in this area. Uh, to the, and and this, this kind of proverbial statement would have been quite familiar to his hearers. The, the, the size of the mustard seed being very small was a common understanding. And so uh, we, we know now, of course, that there's many seeds smaller than the mustard seed, but we also, we have no reason to believe that this wasn't known too in Jesus' day. Uh, science wasn't invented in the past few hundred years. Uh, we do the same thing even with language today. It's like saying someone is as strong as an ox or the bed was as hard as a rock or this is the best cup of coffee in the world. Speaking of movies with adults who act like children, you see an elf, uh, he, he, uh, Will Ferrell elf walks by the coffee shop, says best cup of coffee in the world. And he leaves his head and he says, congratulations. And it's like this kind of like dumpy looking diner. Um, we, we use phrases not to say, hey, test my literal validity. Um, the point is colloquial understanding. Right, the point of Jesus saying this here was to communicate something in an accessible manner 
to his hearers. So that's, uh, that's the first clarification I wanna make. Jesus was simply using this proverbial statement whose emphasis wouldn't have been lost on his hearers. The kingdom of God starts very small, small as a mustard seed. Uh, the second clarification I wanna make is this. I think it'd be helpful to explain what the mustard plant is so we can grasp the image that Jesus is trying to give. I remember uh, uh, hearing a long time ago, and actually hearing several times people talk about this parable, talk about the parable of the mustard seed, and make a big deal about the size of the mustard tree and how it's one of the biggest trees out there. So speaking of taking people at their word, I took these people at their word, and I have thought until very recently, uh, the past year actually is when this was clarified for me, that, uh, that mustard trees were these huge trees. Uh, see, th- what I saw was pictures like this. Would you pull up that first picture, Beto? Um, this, you see the mustard seed. This was, I got this off of a Christian devotional website. Mustard seed, and I thought that was the mustard tree. How about the next picture? Another one, all kinds of pictures show up uh, on Google when you search for mustard tree. And what I found though, was that the trend was that all of these pictures of big trees were from Christian devotional websites. Um, and not from actual biological websites. The problem is that these are not mustard trees, right? The mustard plant is actually a large bush rather than a tree, like we commonly think of the word tree. It looks like this next slide. That is what a mustard plant looks like. Um, And it it grows to be slightly taller uh, than, than this. It usually grows uh, to be a a little bit taller than a a human, about eight to 10 feet tall, probably up to 15 feet. Um, And here's actually, pull up the next one. Here's a picture of a person standing in a thicket of mustard trees, mustard bushes. So that is what the mustard plant actually is. That's what it looks like. Uh, uh, In fact, if you go back to the second picture, Beto, go back to that second picture of the tree, that this is actually probably just a misnamed picture. The, The yellow flowery plants, that's the mustard plants. (laughs) <laughs> not the tree. Um, and so anyway, just, just clarification. This makes sense though. So to understand the mustard plant as, as, as mustard bush, right? Thickets of, of these uh, quick growing bushes makes sense given Jesus's words in our passage. Uh, if you look at verse 32, Jesus doesn't say that the mustard tree is larger than all other trees. He says, when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So that's the second clarification I wanna make right up front. The mustard plant is actually a bush, right? A large bush that grows rapidly up and out. The emphasis that Jesus is making is on the scale and the rate of the growth from beginning as a tiny seed to ending up as this remarkably large, hardy plant that can cover the desert countryside, right? That is, Jesus says, is what the kingdom of God is like. So more on that in just a moment, but with those clarifications in mind, uh, let's look at what Jesus is saying. I wanna make three observations for us uh, for this morning. And as an aside, never mind. okay. Three three observations for us this morning. Uh, For the first observation, um, I wanna do this. I wanna ask us a question. Right in his opening words, we see Jesus again preparing to compare what he calls the kingdom of God with something that's not the kingdom of God. Here's a question. Why the comparisons? 
Why the comparisons in the first place? Last week, we looked at the question of why Jesus compares the kingdom of God with such ordinary things. But now I wanna go beneath that question just a little bit and ask the question, why does Jesus compare the kingdom of God with other things at all? As Jesus starts out, he asks himself this kind of two-part rhetorical question. He says, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? He pauses to show that he's giving great thought to how to describe the kingdom of God by comparison. But why isn't he instead thinking about how to say this is what the kingdom of God is? You might be in here wondering what the kingdom of God is. All right, I've mentioned it a number of times already this morning. We talk about it often here at Sojourn, um, but I haven't this morning. Often we don't really define what the kingdom of God is. If you're a Christian in the room and you're at least familiar with the kingdom of God as a concept, think for a moment of where you learned in the Bible what the kingdom of God is. Can you name for me a verse where the Bible tells you this is what the kingdom of God is? No, you can't. Because it is always like as statements in the Bible that describe the kingdom of God. Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God. We're taught to pray that the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. We're told to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be given to you. We're told that indeed the kingdom of God is already here, that it is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans, that's probably the closest. It is righteousness and peace and joy, three abstract concepts. We're even told that the kingdom of God is within us, but, but Jesus never says, this is what the kingdom of God is. It's always the kingdom of God is like. And so why, question, why all these comparisons? Let me make an attempt at answering that question. Uh, let me put it this way. When so when philosophers discuss the way that it's possible to know something, they observe a difference between what's called direct knowledge and analogical knowledge. And that's as complicated as it's gonna get, don't worry. So direct knowledge, analogical knowledge. Knowing something directly means that you know something is true because you have direct experience with it, whether through your senses or through being taught through the intellect, you know something directly for what it is. Knowing things analogically or by analogy, that's what that word means, knowing things by analogy is knowing something not directly, but by its association to or comparison with something else. All right, so think of a three-year-old kid who knows that a crayon writes on paper. All right, she knows directly that a crayon writes on paper because she's experienced it. She's held it in her hand and drawn on paper. That's direct experience, direct knowledge. Now think of that same three-year-old kid uh, who asks why she's not allowed to drive. Right? She may ask you why she's not allowed, and you could explain that she doesn't have her driver's license yet because she's not old enough, and that when she's old enough, she'll get to take a test. The problem with that, though, is that you just answered her question by giving her probably three concepts that she doesn't really understand. She doesn't know what her driver's license is. She doesn't know what a test is. She probably doesn't even understand what age is and what it means that she's not old enough. So instead, you might tell her something like, you know how there's some things... Like at the pool, you're not big enough to go down the big slide because you're not as tall as the line on the sign. It's kind of like that. You need to wait until you grow and then you'll be allowed to drive. But using something that she is familiar with to explain something she's unfamiliar with is giving her what's called analogical knowledge, teaching by analogy. There's a lot missing from that explanation to that three-year-old, but that doesn't mean that you're being bad or that you're withholding the truth from her. Instead, you're actually being loving to her. It's condescending in a loving and positive way. You're speaking on her level so that she can understand as much as possible. It's not untrue. It's just not the whole picture because she's not, under, she's not able to understand the whole truth. 
So in these parables, in other words, you might see what I'm trying to do here. When Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God by analogy, he's not keeping secrets from us. He's actually speaking in a way that we can begin to understand and wrestle with. As verse 33 says, with many such parables, Jesus spoke to them as they were able to hear it. Perhaps, and if you think with me for a minute, the the clearest depiction of direct knowledge in the Bible of the kingdom of God is the book of Revelation where John recounts this vision that he got of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And if you're familiar with that book, it's actually full of the same thing. Descriptions like, its appearance was like, its appearance was like, its appearance was like. John struggles to find out what to fill that blank with because he doesn't know how to describe what he's seeing. There's creatures with bunches of heads and extra body parts, all kinds of different colors and scenes that he has no reference for. There's this king who's seated on the throne with great power and might, but at the same time, he appears as though he's a lamb who was once slain, but he's powerful. There's this, you can hear John in the book of Revelation and other prophets describing their heavenly visions. They're struggling to to use human words because they are having a hard time themselves comprehending the full reality of what they've seen. Jesus' intent in these parables was not to uh, obscure the truth, but to present the kingdom of God in ways that we can understand and invite us to dig. He knows that not all will be able to receive his teaching and even those who are able to receive it will not understand things immediately. But this is right in line with how he teaches about the growth of the kingdom of God as we've talked about for the past few weeks. It's a progressive but gradual growth, both on a macro scale in the world and how it's unfolding, but also in the individual life. The kingdom of God is a reality that comes to gradual fruition in in, in the lives of those who believe. So back to the question, why the comparisons... Jesus uses language, I think, that is understandable and relatable to his hearers, and he does so kind of by way of invitation. He wants us to seek the truth beneath these comparisons, to grasp the reality beneath the story. We're not able to fully comprehend the kingdom of God in its fullness, but rather than simply remaining silent, Jesus gives us these intentional, purposeful hints that begin to shine light in gradual fashion on the glorious reality that will one day cover the earth. That's the first observation. For the second observation, uh, I wanna ask another question. So first, why the comparisons? Now second, if comparison is the goal, why does Jesus use the mustard plant as a comparison for the kingdom of God? So in the way that he tells us, as I mentioned just a moment ago, that we see his focus is on the contrast between the initial and final states. The mustard seed, verse 31, when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Verse 32, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. So to better understand what Jesus is saying, let me talk a little bit more about the mustard plant. So the the actual growth of the mustard plant was remarkable. And Jesus' uh, hearers would have known this. I've heard the mustard plant in the Mediterranean world compared to kudzu here. You know what kudzu is. Uh, it's this invasive species that grows so fast and before you know it, entire gardens, entire sections of the woods can be covered by this invasive plant. Um, that's how the mustard plant was seen back then is even seen today. It grows like a weed. One biologist describes the mustard plant like this. It is an invasive plant that will consume a whole countryside in a short time. The plants grow so tightly together, they create an unsurpassable thicket that becomes a home to many species of bird, insect, and rodents. It literally becomes its own ecosystem. There's this this LA Times article from a few years ago uh, that talked about how the mustard plant was introduced 
uh, to the environment in California. And the tone of the article, which was called, the, the name of the article was, this super bloom is pretty dangerous. Invasive mustard is fuel for the next fire. So the tone of this article is of course one of lament. Here's a couple of highlights. Listen with your kingdom of God ears. Um, it is something people tend to misunderstand, said Jada Berger, the science program director for the California Invasive Plant Council. They, <laughs> who knew? Uh, they see a nice yellow field in the distance, but on closer inspection, it's a mustard field. Another one, park officials want to prevent other invasive species from taking over the way mustard has come to dominate the landscape. It's a terrible invasive species, Algers said. Don't know who he was. I didn't copy that part. Uh, it is so widespread. It doesn't meet the criteria of being something we can actually manage on a large scale. Last one, Scott Steinmouse, the head of a local university's horticulture and crop science department says this. It says, no way we are going to get rid of black mustard. We have so much of it. We can try to protect areas that don't have a lot of it yet, but we will never eradicate black mustard. So that is what Jesus is giving us to compare the kingdom of God with. The kingdom of God is almost virus-like. I don't necessarily love this particular analogy because viruses are always negative, but I think it can be helpful too. Think about how a virus works. It infects one, begins to reproduce, and then continues to infect in this, this exponential fashion. I'm sure you've seen TV shows, movies about outbreaks trying to contain the effects of biological weapons. It's all about containing and eradicating the threat. But what Jesus is saying here just happens to be an uncontainable, uh, is that the kingdom of God just happens to be an uncontainable threat. In the words of Scott Steinmouse, that accidental prophet who is the head of the horticulture and crop science department, no way are we going to get rid of the kingdom of God. We have so much of it. We can try to protect areas that don't have a lot of it yet, but we will never eradicate the kingdom of God. The kingdom is coming, Jesus is saying in this parable. The kingdom of darkness will try to suffocate and eradicate its spread where it can, but it cannot be successful. The darkness simply cannot overcome the spreading light. As Jesus himself says, Matthew 16, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus tells his parable uh, uh, to acknowledge to his hearers that what they are seeing right now is small, right? but it will grow and it will become larger than they could possibly imagine. And this is what we see, if we think for a moment about the history of the Christian church, this is what we see in church history. Those who witnessed the initial proclamation of the kingdom saw a small beginning. There were dozens with Jesus to start with. They grouped up into hundreds and then thousands. By the end of his ministry though, there were still just several thousand followers. At the end of his life, most had fallen away. And even after his resurrection, there was a small group of 120 believers. It is these 120 people though, who were given the Holy Spirit on that day of Pentecost, nearly 2000 years ago, who saw the beginnings of this explosive movement of disciples making disciples, planting churches that planted churches that quickly covered the face of the known world. So you see, ever since Jesus said these words in this parable, uh, all we've seen in the history of the church is what Jesus talked about here. Although darkness continues to attempt to stifle the kingdom's growth, and sometimes even appears to infiltrate the ranks of the kingdom of God in the church, yet somehow the kingdom continues to grow, spreading to new peoples, new areas with each passing day, with each passing moment. 
So that's the second observation. Just want to think about why he picked the mustard plant. The third observation I want to make for us is this. I want to point out a couple of things that Jesus says in this parable that would have stuck out to his Jewish hearers. Uh, because uh, they, they would have been very familiar with God's word from the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament today. And Jesus used some words, uses some words here quite deliberately. Right at the beginning, verse 30, Jesus says, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? Right. Listen, with that in mind, listen to Isaiah 40, verse 18. Isaiah writes this, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare with him? Do you, see the, do you hear the similarity between those words? Jesus' hearers would have heard that similarity too. Right? That verse, Isaiah 40, 18, would have been an oft-quoted common way of referring to the holiness and majesty of God. To whom then will you liken God? Or with what likeness compare him? Right? This, those words would have been a correction for people who went a little bit too far in claiming to understand God. Jesus' words here would have jogged his hearers' minds back into their knowledge of the Old Testament, prepping them for what he says in verse 32. Look with me about what Jesus says about birds and branches. Verse 32, yet when the mustard seed is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So why does Jesus talk about birds making nests in the shade of this mustard plant? Right? It seems a bit random. The parable would not be missing anything that we've observed to this point without these words here. So why does he include it? Right? A good rule to follow, as one Bible culture scholar that I like often says, is that if a detail seems a bit random or out of the ordinary to our ears as 20, 21st century hearers, um, we should probably flip back in our Bibles because it's probably in the text. And sure enough, the image of birds finding rest in the shade of branches is a familiar one from several places in the Old Testament. To give, uh, to give just one example, the prophet Ezekiel in several places refers to a tree that God will plant to be a blessing to all nations as a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that his family would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. See, Ezekiel 17 says this, verse 23, on the mountain, excuse me, on the mountain height of Israel will I plant it that it may bear branches and pr produce fruit and become a noble cedar, and under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. It goes and talks about a bunch of nations. Later in Ezekiel 31, verse six, all the birds of the heavens made their nests in its bows, under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young, and under its shadow lived all great nations. That's just, that's one example. This parable then, doesn't just give us a picture of the powerful growth of the kingdom of God, despite its humble beginnings. Well, it certainly does give us that. It also gives us into a, a window into, I think, the character of the kingdom of God, the character of the kingdom. We see here a picture of God's grace to the nations, right? his, his grace to all peoples. Because at this point, Jesus arrived as a Jew. He was a Jewish rabbi preaching primarily to Jews. It wasn't until later that the Gentiles, those people who were non-Jewish, were welcomed in. But Jesus here in this parable is giving a picture of God's grace to all the nations, including the Gentiles. You see, it'd be too easy, I think, 
too easy in the midst of these parables, talking about the glorious power of the kingdom of God, that even though it's hidden right now with humble beginnings, it will ultimately prevail. It's gonna push back the darkness. The gates of hell won't prevail. It could be easy for us if we're not careful to get so caught up in God's power and the power of his kingdom that we miss God's heart and the heart of God in these parables at the very core, which finds itself at the very core of Jesus's ministry. You see, at the core of Jesus's ministry, at the depths of the heart of God is love. Love for his people, love for all of his people. Jesus's ministry is not primarily about winning battles and declaring victory for victory's sake. It's primarily a rescue mission. His beloved children, right? The human beings God created for his glory to be in intimate relationship with him have been lost ever since they were tempted and led away from him by the prince of darkness, an event that broke God's heart. And his plan for all time has been to come back for his lost people, to come back for us, to rescue us from the grip of the enemy that he might welcome us home with open arms, overjoyed that the children who were once lost have now been found. Jesus in these words and throughout his whole ministry and with his very life is calling us. He's inviting us back to our father. As he says in Luke 12, verse 32, fear not little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Come, he says. In this parable of the mustard seed, come find shade in the branches of the tree, this spreading thicket of trees, the very kingdom of God, which has come from heaven down to earth in order to win back God's lost sheep, his lost children, that we might have life with him once more. Do you hear him calling? Jesus knew that the growth of this mustard thicket and of the kingdom of heaven would cost him his life. And it was for the joy that was set before him, as it says in Hebrews 12 too, that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, beckoning lost sinners through the presence and voice of his Holy Spirit, come, come to me, I've done all things. The kingdom is for you. Knowing that Jesus would have to die for his kingdom to go forward, the way that he tells the parable here is deliberate. The words of the Old Testament prophets focused on large royal trees like the noble cedar from Ezekiel 17. Jesus here, though, uses simply a mustard plant. His point made through irony is loud and clear. This glorious kingdom, this glorious response of God to the promise he made to Abraham is coming, the promise he made to Abraham, which dates back to the Garden of Eden the promise that he would come and crush the head of the serpent and win back his people is coming through humble means, starting small and not just small, but paradoxically with the death of its king. But it will blossom in a way that will cover the earth. And so as I close, let me ask a few questions. The first question that I wanna ask is this. Are you ready to accept the word of Jesus. If you're a Christian in the room, are you ready to accept the word of Jesus? Do you accept him? Is he the Lord over your life? Do you receive all that that means for your life and what that will cost? There's a lot of people who will say, Lord, Lord, who don't actually know Jesus. Are you ready to hear his word, the word of life, and give your very life to follow him?
Is the kingdom of God your very life or is it a side hustle? Jesus is inviting you in. The kingdom of God is not a side hustle, it is everything. If you're not a Christian, do you hear him calling to you? If you're curious, if you're leaning in, then don't miss this call. Don't think that you're not ready to hear and begin following Jesus simply because you don't understand everything. Ask the people in this room. Not one of us has all of our questions answered. I still have many questions that I bring to God regularly that he has yet to answer. The call is not to grasp everything, but simply to hear the call to follow and watch as Jesus brings you paradoxically from death to life, from wandering to following, from yearning to tasting, from, from, from yearning to feasting on things like truth, meaning purpose, life itself. Very specifically, here's what I mean when I ask if you accept Jesus. I don't want to be vague. I mean this, are you ready to follow him? Do you hear him calling you saying, follow me? Are you ready to take the first step of obedience to the word that he gives you in his word? Will you follow him? Will you come to him? The second question, and this will be my final question that I wanna ask us is this. What is your faith in? This is for everyone in this room. What is your faith in? The reason I picked the water boy as the illustration at the beginning is, is that I think it's actually quite helpful, right? Sandler, Adam Sandler plays this adult who has lived, lived much of his life as a child who is made fun of for hearing things from his mama and believing them. It's a strong caricatured example of this kind of situation, right? But, but I think that for the most part, it kind of nails the question that I'm asking. I think this is how so many of us see this kind of thing. It is childish and therefore foolish to think, take things as they're given to us. Instead, we should discover and test things for ourselves. And listen, that is a valuable thing to learn. Testing things to find out whether or not they're true is important in our lives. It's even in the Bible. Right? Speaking of prophecies, the apostle Paul writes, 1 Thessalonians 5, test everything. Hold fast what is good. We've been given brains. Right? We were created with inquisitive minds wired to investigate the world around us but we were also made the way that we are made to receive good things from God and particularly his word. And the challenge that you and I face is that we tend to move to the extremes. Since others can be unreliable, we conclude that we are left with only ourselves as the measure of truth. Man is the measure of all things. As the ancient Greek philosopher once said that became the kind of the, 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 the chorus of the, the Western enlightenment. Man is the measure of all things. As a result, when we hear from Jesus that the kingdom is something that is to simply be received and received by faith, we push back. As products of our culture, as products of our own pride, arguing that we must see it for ourselves. And when Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it, we think, no, he mustn't have met that literally. We think about Adam Sandler and the water boy. We think of Elf. Right? We think of this foolish, idiotic, blind faith. Perhaps, though, this is what Jesus said it would look like. Perhaps he knew that some would shake their heads and laugh at his followers. Perhaps the Apostle Paul knew something about this when he wrote at the beginning of 1 Corinthians that for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. God is not asking you to take the word of your mama with all of her opinions at face value. He is asking you to take his word at face value. 
the God of creation, the God who created all things, who holds all things together by the word of his power is inviting you and me, calling to you and me, receive this word and trust it because it is trustworthy. His word is not only all we have, but it is all we need. And if you permit me, look at, look at what next happens in this story as we read on in Mark chapter four. What happens just after this? Let me read verse 35. On that day, so the same day, he's teaching these parables about hearing, hearing, receiving the word. And then what, what happens? Evening had come and he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, him with the, uh, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. The waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling, but Jesus was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Jesus said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Stop there. Do you see what happened there? So Jesus's disciples were about to die because this great windstorm arose and Jesus says, peace be still. And then the wind and the waves obey his voice. Imagine being one of the disciples here, right? I'll venture to say that this is probably a bigger miracle than you or I have ever experienced in our lives with Jesus. And what happened after this though? Eventually the disciples fell into doubt and they abandoned their savior at the very end. Living based off of what your eyes can see will fail you. Jesus is clear about that. God is clear about that throughout the scriptures. What Jesus is doing here, what he's doing throughout this chapter is he's speaking to his disciples and not just speaking to to them, but speaking the word to them, verse 34, as they were able to hear it. He's teaching it to their ears. In keeping with what I talked about last week about God making us a people of the ear, Jesus is rooting the kingdom and its growth in the word, not in our experience. You will forget your experience. You will doubt whether the experience that you experienced was as you initially interpreted or whether it was just some coincidence. You will doubt these things. The word, though, remains eternal. The word cuts to the heart. The word gives life. What does it say? Uh, Paul says, let the word dwell in you richly. Not let your memories and your experiences, let the word dwell in you richly, uh, singing songs about it, admonishing one another with it. Let the word dwell in you richly. Be people of the word. Let the word do the work. The Holy Spirit must be present to weave the truth of the word in your heart. And when, he, when it does, that is where you will find life. And so the invitation from Jesus is, hear my words. Will you hear my words and receive them? He's calling to you. He's calling to me this morning. Will we receive it? And watch as this kingdom of God continues to expand. As the mustard seed quickly covers a field, will we watch together in the shade of that, those mustard trees as the kingdom of God continues to grow until the day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord because that day is coming, brothers and sisters. Let us find ourselves in him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. And thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for us, your pursuit of us. Thank you for the power that you display so regularly in our midst and in the world. But even more than displays of your power to our eyes, we thank you for your word. 
ask that you would give us faith, the faith that is a gift from you, not something that we earn, not something that we muster up for ourselves, but something that you graciously give us because we are your children. Once lost, found now by you through your spirit. And so help us to hear and heed your call. Have your way with us, we ask, Holy Spirit. By the mercies of God, please meet us here right now. Cut us to the heart. And make us more like Jesus today and every day that is to come. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.